Hi, Miss Yell. You ready for today's Bible reading? Okay, put your hand up like this. Everybody got your hand up? Now pull it across your body and buckle up because this is going to be a lot of reading. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 9 to 10, verses chapter 10, excuse me, chapter 9, verses 1 to 10, chapter 11, and chapter 12. Here we go. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. Then, too, I saw the wicked buried. Those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This, too, is meaningless. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, that no man knows whether love or hate awaits him. All share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good man, so with the sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are filled with evil and there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterwards, they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. And even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing. They have no further reward. And even their memory, uh, the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For it is now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife and whom you love. All the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hands, hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For the grave where you are going, for the, in the grave where you are go going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. Cast your bread upon the waters for after many days you will find it again. Give portions to seven, yes, to eight, for you do not know what disaster may come to the land. If the clouds are full of water, they pour rain upon the earth, whether the tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant, whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the path of the wind, or how the body is formed in a mother's womb. So you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning, and at the evening let not your hands be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, whether both will do equally well. Light is sweet, 
and it pleases the eye to see the sun. However many years a man may live, but let, let him enjoy them all. But let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. Be happy, young man, while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. So then banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body for youth and vigor are meaningless. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain, when the keeper of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors to the streets are closed and the sound of the fine grinding fades, when the men rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint. When men are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags himself along, no desire to be is stirred and no desire is stirred. Then the man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed or the golden bowl is broken before the pitcher is shattered at the spring or the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out to set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. The they are collected saying like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end and study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. There is no conclusion of matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Amazing. Everybody, Julie deserves just like so much applause and award for reading um, just an entire book to us before we got started. Um, we are, right now, finishing up a series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And we wanted to start the year in this book of Ecclesiastes as a way of grounding us for 2021. If you've been with us, and you, you kind of get this sense from Ecclesiastes that it names the uncertainty of life, the fragility of life, the way life can feel like a vapor chasing the wind. That's what that phrase, meaningless, 
meaningless directly translates to vapor, vapor. And it's meant to evoke in us this notion that life sometimes feels like you just can't get your hands around it, like it is always just out of reach from you. And that, for so many of us, is how 2020 felt. Even if it was a good year, in so many ways, like it felt uncertain and uncontrollable and unpredictable. And so for that kind of moment, the author of Ecclesiastes, the teacher and the editors, well, they offer us an unconventional wisdom. How do we live in a moment that feels like vapor? How do we live in a space that feels fragile? How do we live in something where all the wisdom that we have applied before doesn't seem to work that well? Like we, were just, we were joking about some of the things that happened in 2020 just out in the hallway before service started. And if, you just, like, if you were in Utah and you're just recounting things that happened in 2020, we had um, COVID. Oh, and then the largest earthquake Utah's like ever had right afterwards. Oh, and then a windstorm that like ripped out 100-year-old trees by the roots. You're like, there's nothing... There's nothing you can do to prepare for that moment when the book of Revelation is all of a sudden happening on your doorstep. You're like, where's Kurt Cameron? Who's going to rescue me? (laughs) That joke's very specific if you grew up in church camp. (laughs) By laughing, we know who you are. You're like, this thing is unrolling in the middle of us. You're like, it is so uncertain. And so what do we do when the conventional wisdom that we would normally apply to life doesn't apply. We turn to a book like Ecclesiastes, which is a book of unconventional wisdom. And if you have your Bible, Julie read a lot of text, but I want you to go to the very end of it, to Ecclesiastes 12, starting in verse 8. At this moment, we have um, an epilogue to the whole book. And there's, there's a lot of things. Heather began this series by telling us there is a lot of things about Ecclesiastes that we don't know. We don't know exactly who the teacher of Ecclesiastes is. We don't know if it's one person, if it's a bunch of people, if it's a compiling of different sayings that's given one voice. Traditionally, we've thought it was Solomon, so maybe a lot of it is Solomon. We're not 100% sure, but we do know a few things. We know there is an editor or a compiler to the book. And we know that because there is a prologue and an epilogue that say that. that The things to come are the words of a teacher, and this thing is not that. And then we know in the epilogue, this person is commenting on the words of the teacher that they have then compiled together. So we know there's some kind of editor or commenter or compiler who's putting the book together. And we also know that the book comes near the end of the Old Testament. It's one of the last books to kind of make its way into the canon And it comes after Israel's life has been so tragically and cataclysmically upended by the uncertainty of life. They had kingdoms and politics and kind of normal systems and normal ways of being and normal rhythms of life. And those things have been so upended. Their kingdom is overthrown. And now Israel finds themselves, when they're reading this book as a compiled piece, they're finding themselves subjects of a conquering nation. So life for them feels deeply uncertain and deeply fragile in some ways like it does for us, which is where these words come from. And so because of that moment that Israel finds themselves in, uncertain and fragile, the editor compiles this wisdom for Israel. And in this like final epilogue, 
the editor tells us why. Why have I done this? Like, why have I put all of this wisdom together that some of us have found really beautiful and some of us have been, like, really turned off by? And the editor says this in verse 11. I've done all of this. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. So the editor uses these two metaphors, goads, which is like a, like a prod that a, a shepherd would use on sheep or cattle to get them moving. It's a bit of a rude metaphor because I think we're the cattle in that illustration. But the idea is that the editor has compiled this wisdom together to act like a goad for the people, to challenge them, to ask them questions, to poke them into a new way of thinking, a new perspective, a new orientation on life. And then he says that are like nails, which is maybe a way of thinking that there's also some, like, some really important truths that you can like, hang your hat on, something that you can really hold on to in the book. And so the two images come together and you're like, oh, the editor has compiled these words to challenge our perspective, to challenge our orientation, and to, to get us to find some new truths, to find new foundational truths. The book of Ecclesiastes is here to question the way that we live. To jolt us into new perspectives. And we have experienced this. If you've been reading the book of Ecclesiastes with us, it starts by using time as a goad. And challenging the way that we think our work or our lives or our existence is really significant. But then when you put it up against like the, the scope of time, you're like, oh, I am not as significant as I thought I was. And so there's a goad there to challenge our sense of significance. The second goad that the teacher talks about is we think that there's all these things in life that we want and we desire and that they will fulfill us. And the teacher uses questions and experiences to goad us into realizing that those things we want are, at the end of the day, empty and hollow. The teacher talks about death. And how death brings everyone to the same fate. The righteous and the unrighteous, the poor and the rich, that no matter who you are, no matter how wise you are, no matter what you've done, that death will bring us all to the same fate. And these goads, they, they, they're kind of challenging all the things that we put priority on. We put priority on wisdom or on money or experience or power or even some weird sense of like religious superiority in the teacher goads us, challenges us, asks us questions that kind of unravel those assumptions. It challenges that conventional wisdom. That's the purpose of the book, to goad us. And it's not intending to offer us definitive certainty on the other side of that goading. The editor says that also in the epilogue, that I've compiled this wisdom together to goad you, to, to make you think differently, but not to offer you something definitive. In fact, the editor says you should be wary of anything that tries to say this is a definitive way of living. In verse 12, it says, be warned of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. What is that? So I'm goading you to challenge your perspectives. Be weary of things that offer more than them. 
but I do think that leads us to a question, which is, okay, great. That's helpful. That's challenging. That's a, that's a different way of reading the book. It helps us read this book a little bit differently. But goading us towards what? Because right? if you're goading somebody, if you're trying to ask questions that lead somewhere, you are leading towards something. So what is the teacher or the editor leading us towards? And they answered that question too. Here's what the editor says is the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. The whole purpose of the teacher's words, verse 13 and 14. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep God's commandments. For this is the duty of humankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So what is the purpose? What is the questioning or the goading? Well, the editor says to get us to this moment. The deep questions, the deep existential questions that they are asking and pressing against us, those critiques of life are leading us to this moment. But, can we be honest? Just think about this for a moment. How does that feel as the conclusion of Ecclesiastes? How does that feel to hear that that's the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, right? You've just heard that life is a vapor, that it feels like chasing the wind, and that all of these questions have been asked of us so that we might fear God and keep God's commands. And you've just been reminded that you're going to die and that death makes everything a level playing field. And then the teacher says, and the point is to lead you to this conclusion that God's going to bring every deed into judgment. Does that sound like good news? I think if we're honest, and I, hopefully we can be, this is church. It's not always a place of honesty. But if we're honest, I think that is not the conclusion that we hoped for. Right, we've had these tough questions that have been asked to us. And if I'm being honest, I think the resolution that I wanted at the end of it was a resolution, like something good, like some helpful news that's like, life is pointless except Jesus, it's not. And then the teacher's like, uh, fear God? I'm like, oh, bummer. I think for some of us, this answer probably feels like more religious dogma. Right, like we've grown up in religious contexts. Maybe you're from Utah, you've grown up in like a religious home, something that feels kind of intensely religious. And so you hear this statement at the end of it, and you're like, oh, that's the, it, was a, it, was a, it was a trap. You just got me, you just did all these existential questions, and then at, right at the end of it, you pulled the cup, and what was it? More religion. Rude. For others of us, it might produce anxiety. Like, oh, that's the point of life? Is that I'm supposed to fear God, keep God's commands, and then he'll judge me? Whoa. Right, so for some of us, it might just feel like religious dogma. For others of us, it might produce anxiety. And I think just for generally, most of us, it probably does not feel like the resolution that we wanted. It doesn't feel like good news or even helpful news. And I've been thinking about this a lot. Like, why? Why is that true? Why is it the ending of this book? And why does it not feel like good news? And, and here's what I think. I don't know if this is what the, the writer of Ecclesiastes thinks, so just know that. 
going off book here for a second. I think that this is because we bring to this moment images of God that are really painful. We bring to this moment images of God that are really small, that are really tragic, that are really deformed. And we get these images from all sorts of places. We inherit them from the religious traditions that we grow up on. We get them from experiences that we've had. That we've had like an overly aggressive father figure in our life. And so then that actually shapes the imagination for God that we have. So every time we hear the language of father, what we see is a father who is aggressive. And you're like, oh, that's the picture that I have. So I bring that image to God. Sometimes those images come from the world around us. And as all of these influences, they kind of like get into our mind and into the gallery of God that we have in our head. They shape who God is, how we approach God, how God approaches us, which then in turn shapes all of our faith and our worship and our orientation in this thing called the way of Jesus. We have these small, painful, broken images of God. And I think this will be overly generalistic, but there's two, I think, that show up in, in most of us most commonly. And the first one is the image of God as, as like that angry or abusive father. Or maybe like paternal language isn't as familiar, so maybe aggressive judge is the image that comes to mind. The image of God is someone who takes score and keeps count. So you have this image of God as someone who is like that, and it shades then like this moment in Ecclesiastes, this conclusion. So you hear, keep God's commands, and you're like, oh yeah, God's a judge. God's this moralistic figure, and so my job is then to keep the commands of this deity as perfectly as possible, the do's and the don'ts, the religious dogma, the rules, the system. These are moral prescriptions, and they will be tallied. And so then when it comes to, and God will bring all of it to light, all that is hidden comes to light, well, that feels genuinely frightening because you're like, oh yeah, all the things that I haven't done or did do will be brought to light and I will be judged in light of those things. It evokes feelings of like a courtroom or giving an account of our lives or receiving a report card. And if that's our image of God, then it makes sense that as we read this conclusion to Ecclesiastes, it does not feel like good news. It feels like more bad news. Instead of it being a conclusion that is helpful, it produces anxiety or shame or maybe in some of us feelings of superiority that we actually can live up to that standard. That image of God narrates over our lives and over Ecclesiastes and over the Bible and over the church and over all of these things. It narrates over those things an image and story of fear. So that's one image that I think we wrestle with. The second that I think is equally as pervasive in the church, and sometimes they're mixed together, which is confusing, but it happens. The second is the image of a God who is just weak, or uninterested. I think it kind of, kind of play out the same way. Right? In this image, God is either small and incapable or distant and uncaring. 
So you have a small, insignificant God, and maybe that God has good feelings towards you, but it's like really kind of a benign and pointless figure in the universe. Or maybe that God is powerful, but it's just distant and, and doesn't care and is uninvolved and is uninterested and is out of this space. I think the commands of that God, so if you take it to this conclusion of Ecclesiastes, the commands of that weak and insignificant figure, I think they most often feel like superficial spirituality. Like, think about it like this. I was talking to somebody last night about growing up in a tradition that encourages you to pray. And they were saying, like, they didn't understand why. Like, why would I pray? It doesn't feel like it means anything. And, and as the more that we unpacked that, the more that it came down to an image of God that, like, what is the purpose of engaging in this kind of conversation with an insignificant or weak figure? Right? So if you have a weak conception of who God is and all the things that God says to do or the encouragements, the traditions, the disciplines of that God, they just feel like strange spirituality. Like, why would I do those things? Or if that God feels weak and insignificant, then the ethics of that God feel weak and insignificant, which this is the one I think we see play out the most in the church, which is probably why most of us are more compelled by politics than we are by the way of Jesus, because it actually offers something of substance to the problems of our world because our faith has been so riddled down to cliché. And so the faith of a superficial or small God, it just feels insignificant. And then when that God says that they will bring all things to light, I think it just feels empty. What does that mean? Hopefully this isn't a spoiler alert, but if you've seen The Good Place, when they get to The Good Place, and everybody's just like disappointed, I think that's actually most of our conceptions of what judgment in the Bible looks like. It's either something that is terrifying or something that is just empty. There's no celebration. There's no justice. There's no healing. There's no redemption. It's just nothing. And if that is our image of God, well, then this conclusion at the end of Ecclesiastes, I think, is just disappointing. Which doesn't mean anything. That's what Ecclesiastes does in some ways. It goads us. As we get to this place at the end of the goading, it's asking us questions about who God is and who do we think God is. I think in some ways this is one of the gifts of Ecclesiastes. This is the author has been goading us with these questions, challenging our perspectives. Well, I think the most fundamental challenge is the one that comes to our image of God. And it provides us a moment, like as the church who's reading this text and listening to this, it provides us an important moment to ask ourselves, what is our image of God? What is our image of God? When you conceive of God, when you think of God, when you dream up God, when you're in prayer with God, whatever it is, these moments that would evoke some kind of imaginative conception of God, what comes to mind? What is your image of God? Is it angry, shameful, an abusive judge? Is it just nothing? Empty, insignificant, weak, uninvolved, uninterested? What is your image of God? 
And how does that image of God then shape the reading of Ecclesiastes? If we start at the back of Ecclesiastes and sort of read the book backwards from that perspective, how does it shape your reading of Ecclesiastes? And more importantly, how does it shape your reading of your own life? That's really what Ecclesiastes is doing, right? It's asking us questions about the kind of life we live. And so if this conclusion is a conclusion to Ecclesiastes, it's even more sort of the way in which we read our own lives. And so what does your image of God mean about the way you read your own life? What is your image of God? And is that image good? One of my favorite authors is a Franciscan priest named Brendan Manning, and I really like the way that he says it. He's talking about these two images of faith that can kind of occur to us, and he says this, I want neither a terrorist spirituality that keeps me in a perpetual state of fright about being in right relationship with my Heavenly Father, nor a sappy spirituality that portrays God as such a benign teddy bear that there is no aberrant behavior or desire of mine that he will not condone. I want neither of those things. They both feel empty. So what do we do? If we evaluate this image of God that we have that then reads back over our life a story, what do we do with the images of God that we have? And maybe the hardest part about Ecclesiastes is that the author, the editor, the teacher, they don't really give us a different image. They ask us lots of really good questions. They goad us into new perspectives, but they don't give us a new, clear image of God. There's a moment where they say, remember your creator, but I think for us that doesn't evoke a lot. They say fear God a lot, but again, that, depending on your image that you bring to that moment, can mean a lot. And so where do we look? But we have an advantage that the author of Ecclesiastes does not. The Apostle Paul writes this in Colossians 1, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God. The Son is the image of the invisible God. What Paul is saying that is if you want to know who God is, you look to Jesus. If you want to know how God feels, you look to Jesus. If you want to know what God thinks, you look to Jesus. If you want to know how God feels about you and experiences of you and engages with you, you look to Jesus. If you want to understand God's commands, God's judgment, even what it might mean to fear God as this conclusion writes, then you look to Jesus. And what do we find? Well, the Apostle John, who is Jesus' friend, tells us this, that we will find that God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us, that he sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. What do we see when we look at Jesus? Well, we see a God who is love. 
a love that is fully on display in Jesus and the work of the cross, a love that is so compelling and profound that it could overcome enemies and hostility and even death to be with you. A love that beckons us into a fullness of life. This is what John says, that the world might live through him. Heather said at the beginning of this series that Ecclesiastes dares us to live. And the editor is asking questions that goad us into a new perspective and into a new way of life. The problem is that our lives and the life that we are supposed to live is shrunk and captured by deformed and broken and painful images of God. Images that promise life but lead to chasing the wind. They promise a lot and take way more than they give. But Missio, what if our image, what if the way that we picture God, what if the conception of God in our head, what if the gallery of God in our mind was one of love in Jesus? And what if that image re-narrated Ecclesiastes? What if we read Ecclesiastes backwards through this picture of God's radical love for us? And more importantly, what if it re-narrated our own lives? Brenda Manning says somewhere else that our deepest identity is one beloved by God. Any other identity is an illusion. Monsieur, what if our image of God was one of love in Jesus? What might happen to us then? I think that we would find freedom. Which I think, too, is what the writer of Ecclesiastes is goading us into, that you might live free. Free from the images of an angry judge, free from fearful commands, free from benign, useless deities, free from the things that are chasing the wind. And I think that we would find a faith that actually offered us and the world something of substance, a substance of love that overcomes enemies and death and evil in the sacrifice of Jesus. So, Missia, what would happen if our image of God was one of love? I don't know that that's the, that the, the writer of Ecclesiastes had that conception of God, but I think that as we take this story and read it in light of who Jesus is, that we read backwards from Jesus, which is what we're always called to do with the Bible, to read it backwards from Jesus, that if we do that in this moment, that it begins to goad us into a new understanding, into a new set of questions. It calls us to reflect. And so can we just do that for a second together? So, Monsieur, what is your image of God? And what does that image say about you and the world and the people around you? Because here's the thing. If it does not say that your truest identity is one loved by God, then it is a deformed image. You just need to know that. 
And if it doesn't say that the people around you, their primary identity is one deeply loved by God, then you have a deformed image of God. Where does that image come from? What's shaping it? What's giving it power? What's giving it life in you? What what contributes to that image of God? Maybe it's from family history, from experiences, from your religious tradition. Those places are painful. So it shapes and gives life. Because even just naming it can help us to begin to separate out this image of God in Jesus from the images of God that we bring to and lay over. What might happen if your image of God was transformed by Jesus? What if you began to see God through Jesus, as the Bible tells us to? How might you begin to see yourself How might you begin to see the people around you? What might it do to the life that you live? What might happen if your image was transformed by Jesus? You see, would you hold those questions for a second? And then as you entered into this room, you were given a little element of communion. And the reason that we do communion every single week is that it is a way for us to enter into the story of God's love. As we take this little element, like in as strange as it is in this little plastic form, as we take this little element, it presents a radically different image of God to us than the ones that we normally bring into this space. It is an image of God that provides a space for us at their table, that always welcomes us home, that always makes room for us, that always lays the best food and provisions, that always invites us back. That's the image that we encounter, an image that is made possible by the radical love of Jesus displayed on the cross. And so would you take those questions and those images of God that you have, and would you enter into this moment of communion with them and let them wrestle with one another and dialogue with one another? And as you take this little communion element, Would you let it speak to the deformed images of God and remind you who God is in Jesus and remind you who you are in Jesus, one deeply loved? Monsieur, let's pray. God, thank you that you are love. And that you pour out that love in Jesus and invite us to participate. I know that a lot of us in here have probably heard that a lot, actually. But it is like mixed and hidden and trapped within other deformed or broken or painful images of you. So today... I think this is the thing that only you can do in this moment with your people and in the song and in the communion. Would you like bust through those broken images of you? 
like light and dark, would you begin to shine something through that speaks a word of love over you and over your people, that we would know that's the nature of this relationship. It help us to know it deep. Help us to feel it. God, may we listen to you today. In your name we pray. Amen. Missio, we're going to invite you to continue worshiping with us. You can take communion if you still haven't.